0: Hello, this is The Jay Show. Dr. Jay (coughs) Smith here with Dr. Andy Bannister. We've uh, brought him down just to talk about his material, uh, specifically your oral formulaic material. We got into it in the last episode, episode two. Now we're moving into episode three. And we're going to unpack exactly. I didn't want you to get going because it's really getting exciting now. Get me
1: going. We'll be there for right, an hour. We would. And yeah. that's
0: why I want to make sure that we really start from scratch.
1: Sounds good. Back, back up a bit and yeah. uh, explain what you, say, what you were saying in the last episode. So to summarize where we ended in the last episode, um, I talked about the fact that uh, one of the early um, arguments I had my Muslim friends advance for the Quran back in the 1990s was Muhammad was illiterate. Uh, the, the Quran is this amazing work of literature. Uh, and therefore, the Quran's a miracle. And therefore, that intrigued That's me. That's the claim they That's the claim. And that intrigued me because I found myself thinking if all those premises stand up, they're onto something. But then I also described it in the last show how, um, as I began looking actually into oral cultures, you see, built into that assumption, built into that argument is the assumption that oral cultures are stupid. People who don't have access to writing, they can't produce great works of literature. You know, the poor, you know, ignorant ignoramuses. You know, thankfully, we live in this modern literary culture. Well, it doesn't take a lot of studying before you go. Hang on a minute. There, we have amazing works of literature that come from oral cultures. So, for example, we have the, the Greek Greek epic poets uh, poetry, like the Iliad and the Odyssey, written by Homer. Uh, in uh, here in uh, here in England, where we're filming this, we have uh, the uh, the sort of me- the ancient um, Anglo-Saxon poem Beowulf, mm-hmm. uh, which made into a movie a few years ago. That comes largely from a time before before writing. Uh, and so on, on, on it goes. And actually, what it turns out. Because that oral cultures have bequeathed to us huge, wonderful works of, of literature that eventually made their way into writing. And actually what happens, it turns out, as we've studied hundreds of cultures around the world, is oral cultures have all kinds of mechanisms, all kinds of ways they can produce literature without access to writing. And what gets exciting is those methods usually leave clues in the text, when it's re- finally written down, it tell it's where it come down,
0: from. You're going to see something that, that gives you, you what where, where this form, these
1: formula, or these orality is, where this orality comes from. And there are two things in particular. One, you gave the game away with the away with the first word. First word is formulae. In hundreds of oral cultures that we've we've looked at in scholarship over the last hundred years or so, when this scholarship has really got going, is we found that most uh, writing today that comes from oral cultures like Il- the Iliad, the Odyssey, Beowulf, and other other uh, other works contains within it a lot of uh, formulaic phrases, and these are short, repeated phrases that are used time and time and time and time give again. Give some examples. So, I, I, actually, I'll give you a real-world example because they still exist today, even though we're in a rich, written culture. You can still find examples of, of oral phraseology. So, we were we were chatting in the car on the way from the airport. Uh, you're not yet a grandad. You look old enough to be one, but you're not one yet. Thank you. But nevertheless. Little, imagine a little uh, child comes to you, three-year-old, four-year-old, tugs on your uh, sleeve and says, uh, Dr. J, Dr. J, can you tell me a uh, fairy tale? Can you tell me the story of Little Red Riding Hood? How do you start a fairy tale? What's, what would you say? What's the first thing you say? Oh dear, I've, I, I, and I've forgotten it. <laughs> You've just ruined, J ruined the, I just, the illustration. It's, I, it Rules. is. I, oh. Okay. Once upon, upon a time. Once upon a time. Okay. Well, we'll just, just, can we cut that? We'll just back up, because that illustration usually works beautifully, but Jay let me down. Okay, until, so here until he did it. It just went blank. Okay. You're right. So, uh, so let me give you a contemporary illustration, Jay. I mean, you're not a you're not like granddad yet, but look old enough to be one, but you're not there yet. Well, thank um, you. Let's imagine a little uh, four-year-old comes up to you, tugs on your sleeve after church, perhaps, and says, you know, Dr. Jay, Dr. Jay, can you tell me a, a fairy tale? Can you tell me the story of Little Red Riding Hood? How do you start, as any good granddad would, how do you start a fairy tale? What as in all fairy
0: tales, once upon a time. Now,
1: you haven't memorized that. The reason you know that is your parents told you fairy tales that way. Their parents, their parents, their parents, their parents. And that all little oral formula has been preserved. It's also very useful. You don't have to think about how to start a fairy tale. You just know that you start once upon a a time. And uh, all cultures have examples of these but oral cultures have hundreds and thousands of them. Why? Because imagine that you're a, a poet, a performer, a storyteller, a preacher, you're standing in front of an audience waiting to hear from you. You haven't got writing, you haven't got the internet, you've only got what's up here. How do you do it? Well you have this whole vocabulary, this whole library formula that you can just draw upon. And Which people would recognize because they've heard so many time of these and
0: storytellers and time do just that. Yeah, And, and so in a culture where there's storytellers, like the Kusas. These are the kusas we're talking about.
1: They're, those are there. And so what you can then do, what we've discovered in scholarship, you can then come along and do is you can take a text that you think may have come from an oral culture, and what we can do, we can analyze it looking for its formulas. We can go through and look for those short, repeated phrases. Uh, but more interestingly than that, we can calculate what percentage of a text consists of those short, repeated phrases. And this is where your computer now, skills here's where things in. get very, very interesting. On culture after culture after culture, has led us to the conclusion, as scholars, that uh, generally, once you get north, once you get beyond about 20% of a text consisting of short repeated phrases like that, you get an increase that you can be increasingly confident of saying this was originally performed live in front of an audience, created live in front of an audience by an oral performer, storyteller, and singer. And so, for example, Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, those Greek poems, there's something like 25% of the text. Is formulae. and so when I began studying the Quran, I found myself thinking, "Hey, let's do this for the Quran. This needs to be done because it. I think yeah, this, it comes this, this back. This, yes, yeah. this this number twenty. Twenty. Yeah. This is this is what scholars are saying today. That's right. If it's twenty percent, then you can pretty well be assured. The higher you get beyond twenty percent, the greater your confidence. At twenty percent, we're pretty sure. 25%, 30%, 30%, So for those who are not higher following this, high. what
0: we're saying is if you look at a printed text today, yes. if you can find these formulas, these repeated phrases, these repeated yeah. uh, stock phrases that are that we, uh, even we would not possibly, you know, once upon a time we used today, but there are other ones that you
1: see repeat, you know that they would have been well known at yeah. that time. Exactly. Well, they'd be well, they'd be well known. They're useful to the performer. The other thing that's interesting that's been pointed out, one big difference between literary cultures and oral cultures, we often in literary cultures get bored with repetition. So if you were to go uh, you know at the bookseller at the airport, buy a buy a novel to read next time you fly back home to the USA and it's like you know every fourth phrase was a repetition. You'd probably start going, This author is really boring. Yeah. He can he needs to coin a new phrase. I've heard this. In oral cultures it's the other way around. Uh, they actually prefer uh, the traditional, that which is known, um, and if you start if you start coming up with stuff that's original, people start complaining because it's not the story that they've they've known. It's Indeed. not the way they've known it. Now,
0: so, I, because you're talking to an awful lot of people who are so used to the written text, they're not going to see the importance. Of repeat, I mean, say that again. That's so important. We're not talking about written cultures. We're talking about oral cultures. Most of us yeah. who are watching are not from oral cultures, so this is new for exactly. us.
1: Exactly. And so, there's a, it's hard thinking yourself in terms of in, into an oral culture because because writing writing does a number of things. In right. Western education, everything is written. Well, even in, even you take it, notes. Even in Eastern. you write essays. Even in Eastern you write culture. tests. Yeah. I'm going to keep interrupting you because Absolutely. I want people to really get this. You do. We do
0: everything. We by do everything by, by word writing. Word.
1: We compare writing, but more than that, the other thing that's been pointed out: writing changes the way you think because the moment that you the moment that you can write something down, you have the chance to write it and then go back and edit it. You can't edit a, an oral text. Once it's out there, once you've, once you've told the story and you've preached it, it's out there, it's got legs, it's, it's running. Um, writing allows you to do things that you can't do without it. Some, w- w- somebody once pointed out that, for example, a list is a written, Invention, oral cultures don't memorize lists. Okay. Sorry, we
0: well. all of us have got to switch gears. We've got to Stop switch gears. Stop at the Quran as a written text like we look at it. Think back mm. into orality, for instance. Go a back into it. Now, for, for those of us who don't come from oral cultures, you made something But really here we're jumping a step, though. How do we know the Quran is an oral okay, Before we do that But I still want to get this idea. Yes. In an oral culture, you want, to, you want things that are familiar. You want phrases that help you to understand, to, to give you the genre, to, give you, to make you feel that's familiar with you.
1: You want the stuff that's familiar and traditional, and as, a, and as of course, as the person who's doing the speaking and the performing, you, you, you reliance upon formulae because you've got an audience out there ex- hanging off your word, expecting you to hear. And if you say to your audience, you know, it's gonna take me 20 minutes to come up with the right phrase here, I'll be back in a moment. You've lost them. You've got yep. to be there. Deliver, 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 deliver. And formulaic phrasing allows you to do that as an experienced performer. Okay, this is another proof that
0: this is an oral society.
1: Whenever I introduce this, 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 this material to people, the idea that the Quran is repetitious is not controversial. Anyone who's read the Quran has noticed, oh hang a minute, I've, I've seen that phrase uh, again and, and, over and, and over and over and what's going again. Over again, you're right. So, built the computer software. And we ran the analysis. Now, here's the thing. Think back a few moments ago. I said 20% is kind of the threshold. If if 20% of a text consists of short, repeated phrases, we're pretty certain it's being created by an oral performer live in front of an audience. Um, Homer's poems, which in, in classical Greek scholarship, nobody really disputes they were created this way. They're 25%. What about the Quran? What percentage? Well, it depends on what surah you're looking at because the numbers fluctuate, but let's take an average somewhere between about 45 and 50%. Of the Quran. Now we're
0: going to put up a graph here. I think it's fascinating because you're going to show the Meccan versus the Medinan. And you can see the graph there. If you take a look at the graph, just point out, explain what, what's on the Well, there's the graph. a couple of
1: things going on. We'll show that the, the graph uh, you're uh, you're going to look at here it does a couple of things. It shows you the formulaic density, the percentage of, of, of formulas in each surah. Immediately you can see a couple of things. Firstly, it runs very high for most of them. But also there's a noticeable step in the graph towards the end of the, the numbers and uh, the way the Quran is organized, most of the, uh, most of the uh, Meccan material is towards the back of the Quran. When
0: you're looking at that graph, the left side is Medina and the right side would be Meccan. Yeah, now
1: that's, only, that, that's not hard and fast, rule, it's a general rule. What we were then able to do with the computer is actually go, well just out of interest, how do the numbers stack up for Meccan and Medina? We'll just, we won't just look at the graph and get a hunch, we'll actually get the, the numbers. And what you notice is that the, the, the so-called Medina material in the, in the Qur'an, uh, there's a huge difference in the, uh, in the number there over the Mecca. Material. There's much a, there's higher. A, yeah, there's a much, yeah, there's a difference going on there, which is actually surprising. So what you're saying no. is it, it has human, human intervention. Monks. Yeah, and, and actually, in fact, let me illustrate actually with, a, with an illustration I sometimes use when I, when I do the university lecture on this. One of my, one of my hobbies is uh, walking and exploring the, the mountains of Northern England and, and Scotland. And uh, there's a lot of history up there. And often you'll come across, when you're walking in the mountains, you'll come across tunnels in the mountains, uh, old mines. There's lots of in, what we call industrial archeology. span Now there's interesting thing going on, uh, on up there. You'll find mines that were dug by the Romans, uh, because unlike you uh, Americans, we have thousands of years of history in this country. And so some of those mines were actually go back to Roman times. Some of them were dug by the Victorians. Mm-hmm. How do you tell the difference, between a, uh, very quickly, between a Victorian mine shaft, tunnel, and a Roman one? Well, here's the thing, the, ro- the, the, the Victorians had black powder, they had explosives, mm-hmm. and they would blast out, and so, and so you can see the, uh, you know, the shape of the rock looks different. Romans, on the other hand, picks. They literally dug, and you can look along the ceiling, and you can see pick, pick marks, marks, still from 2,000 years ago. In other words, the tools that you use leave marks And this is the fingerprint you're behind. talking about. That's The Quran was constructed orally, using oral tools that have been used in hundreds of other cultures. They leave marks, like those pick marks in the rock. When we look at the text, particularly using computer analysis, it's very, very clear. But there's another... Cl- probably
0: the, one of the best ways to find these pick marks so to speak in a text is to look for orality and you have found over 20% in almost all the well over. more so in the Medinan than in the Mecca.
1: But here's the thing, there's another big oral clue as well and I always want to take these two together because if it was just this, that's pretty powerful evidence and actually were I a Muslim this would give me a huge concern, but it gets better than that. There's another big indicator that a text has come from an oral culture and that's, the, f- that's the, f- um, the existence of something that we call a performance variant. And again, let me illustrate this. Let's go back to that fairy tale analogy I used. Let's imagine a little child comes to you, tugs on your sleeve and says, Dr. J, Dr. J, tell me the story of Little Red Riding Hood. And you tell her the story. And in fact, word gets around, you know, among small children that you're good at this stuff. So a week later, another little kid comes to you, tugs on your sleeve, Dr. J, Dr. J, tell me the story of the Little Red Riding Hood. And we, you, repeat, you repeat the story. Now, if we recorded those two stories and transcribed them and compared them, would they be word for word no, the same? No.
0: In fact, if we were to record what we just done right now, the next time we were to do this next week, you be would different. say it very different. You would have the same Ab- content.
1: Absolutely. Unless you have, unless you've actually gone out and memorized that fairy tale, no. um, then it would be word for it would be different. Same story. You'd have a, a little girl and a wolf and a basket of goodies and a grandmother. All those other things would be in there, but the words be different. You've created what scholars call a performance variant. Two variants versions of the story because they were performed orally, not read or recited or memorized. Now,
0: so let's get back to those stories here we go. Adam and Iblis. You're
1: connecting the dots, right? If you can find performance variants in a text, it's a very strong clue that it comes from orality. Oh. So, the Quran. There are a number of examples, but perhaps one of the most interesting ones is that one we talked about in an earlier episode the story of Iblis and Adam. It occurs seven times in the Quran. Just to recap, because I don't think we've done it this episode, God Allah creates Adam, brings the angels in, says to the angels, bow down. They bow down apart from one, Iblis, who refuses, and for that is cast out of paradise and becomes Satan. That story is there seven times in the Quran. And every time, it's different. different. All the wording's different. It's clearly the same story. There's angels, there's a commandment, there's a bowing, there's a refusal, there's a casting out. The main out.
0: characters, the main events. Are the, the, same. the
1: story looks the same, but the, the wording. The wording, is the way different. it's told. You see, if which the. is exactly what you would expect. You see, if, if the. performance. Particularly, yeah, if the Quran was a, was a purely yeah. literary product, you'd expect one of two things. You'd expect either direct quotation. For example, in the Bible, where the, where the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, you'll often find direct quotation. Or you'll find the Quran saying something like, you know, well, you need to go back to Surah 33 and look this up here. I would self-reference. The fact that it tells the story again and differently best fits this model that we're talking about performance variance. So you put this together with the formulaic data, and we now have a double whammy. We have incredibly powerful evidence that this is the way the the Quran uh, was performed. Now what's interesting, that the Quran was first recited orally is not controversial. We talked about this in episode one of our, of our, of our three episodes together. Uh, you know, how when Muhammad died, the Quran is not in written form, right. and there was this huge effort to try and get it written down. All I'm doing is pushing that back one step and saying it's not that the Quran then sat in heaven and came down to Muhammad. No, no, no. It was first constructed orally, performed orally, composed orally. That's Exposing how itself
0: by the fact that there is this uh,
1: repetition of the same story, it's formula. But in each case it is different. Exactly. And so the problem you have as a, as a Muslim, you know, I mean, just take that story of Iblis and Adam alone. If you were to go try and construct that as a, you know, literary, uh, dev- as a literary product, as a, as a word-for-word recitation, well exactly what did Iblis say to Allah? Exactly how did it play out? I've literally had Muslims look at me and go, well maybe it happened seven times. One Muslim said that to me, a Speakers Corner. <laughs> well maybe seven times uh, God called the angels and every time it's slightly different. And I'm like, That's the lengths you have to go to in order to solve this. So that's a good example. Another good example would be the Annunciation to Mary there in Surah 19 and Surah 3, I think, for memory, isn't it, where there's two stories Mm -hmm. take place. And together there are differences. There are differences in exactly how it plays out. And again, I've literally had Muslims say to me, well, it happened twice, because there's no other way of reconciling it. Or you go, no, it's two different tellings of the same story. The story di- of Moses, ten different tellings, on two ten different times. On at least two occasions, Muhammad has stood in front of an audience. If it's Muhammad, who's the author, of the, uh, the author of the Qur'an, Muhammad stood in front of an audience and told that story. And like any oral performer does, he uses formulae, and we can analyze those. But he also tells the story differently, uh, as you do as an oral performer. And it's left its marks on the Qur'an that we see today and using computer software and other modern tools you can expose this and we're beginning to now really understand how the Quran was put together and why it looks the way it does, why it's so repetitious why these stories occur multiple times and different and also it tells us why the Quran mixes up these kind of biblical stories from the, from the Old and New Testament with the kind of legendary stories like the sleepers of Ephesus, um, you know, like the, Jesus making the clay birds into living birds and so forth, because what's happening is Muhammad has heard these stories floating around the Arabian context, and he's gone, that's a good story, and that's a good story, and that's a good story, and of course what oral storytellers love to do is listen to other people's material and then repackage it and use it them. So As you have
0: done with what you've just told me now, you've done this on different university campuses, uh, you've had many lectures on it, uh, you're not you're using any notes in front of you, you don't need to, because you, know ma- you know the major categories, that you're gonna, you know the, where you're going to go with it, you know exactly what you're going to say, but you don't say it the same way every time.
1: And again, what's interesting about this, again it puts the Qur'an back into its context, before, immediately before the Qur'an, uh, we have the great Bedouin oral poets, the oral poets of Arabia. Scholarship has studied those, and we know this was the way that these the guys is al- cut, uh, composed.
0: Poem is a famous yeah. one.
1: And in fact, you can find contempor- uh, sort of near contemporary accounts of, of many of the, uh, these, these Bedouin poets, almost literally telling you what they do. They would sort of stand up and, and do their thing. In fact, it's quite fun. It's a little bit of trivia for you. One of the things that those, uh, those Arabic tribes would do. On the battlefields, each tribe would have its poet, and the poets would insult the other. <laughs> Poetry was a weapon, and right. the poet who could compose the, the fastest and the better and the most yes, fluently, well, yeah. you know, won great esteem for its tribe. So it happens before the Quran, and then after the Quran, we see two things. Think about the Hadith and the way that's constructed, those traditions of Muhammad. It's constructed orally. So-and-so said to so-and-so, said to so-and-so, said to so-and-so. It's actually constructed as if it's an oral uh, an oral performance. Dr. Patricia Kroon probably gives a good example of this. She talks about the
0: reference to Muhammad going up with uh, his uncle, Abu Talib. he goes up to Gaza and there he meets a holy man and the holy man talks to him and refers to him uh, that this is a special, special uh, child. But what's fascinating, uh, Patricia Kroon says, when you look at it, you'll find 15 different Tellings of this story exactly, and in some cases in a different city. In some cases, it's when he, he's at a different age. Uh, in other cases, it, but it's still the same story, but it's told fifteen different times, In different ways. And that's this. That's exactly. This the now and we've always known she didn't really say that this is. No. she didn't come up to the conclusions you came up to. But yeah. you can see she was. Co- she was saying. She, her conclusion was therefore it's all false. Probably this never happened. What you're saying is. Hold on. It's not a matter whether it happened or not. We do. Uh, that's not the important thing. The important thing is somebody started this story at one time, and then of course they probably had it in one place. The next time it was told, it was probably put to another place. And another time it was talked about. A cloud would follow him. Another time it, it, it even had the names of the per- they have his uncle different. Well,
1: this is very interesting. And actually, one of the things that's been shown in orality oral is as stories make their way through different cultures, one of the things that often gets dropped off are chronological references, time references, and geographical references. Because if you some great story that somebody told you, you know, about the time to their grandfather in Delhi, perhaps on a trip to India. Yeah, that's a great story, but I want to tell it in America. You know, perhaps I'll just drop the fact it happened in Delhi in the 1950s. I'll retell it as if it happened kind of last week. It's a great story. Um, and we see that in oral cultures all the time. Now here's the interesting thing. We see that with the Quran. Um, Even before, even the, the uh, even the, an untrained reader of the Quran can see this. And the example I would give is look at the stories of Jesus. They're in the Gospels in the Bible, though those biblical uh, accounts of the life of Jesus—Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John—they are, by most uh, accounts, those are uh, Greco-Roman biographies. They're written within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses, by eyewitnesses in many, many cases. Two times by eyewitness and two yeah. we've got from eyewitnesses. and his eyewitnesses. built into them. If you read the Gospels, you'll discover they've got place names, they've got dates, they've got the names of political leaders. They've, they've basically got a spatial address. They've got a time. They take place in a time and place in in history that the text clearly signals. By the time we get to the Quran, 600 years later, well, of course, it's another culture. It's uh, time removed. And so when the Quran talks about Jesus, I mean, think about when, Je- when, when the angel comes in uh, and, and announces to Mary that, that Jesus is going to be born. Where does that story happen? No, when don't. does it happen? No. Jerusalem's not mentioned. The time of he was a
0: child. That's all we know.
1: And that's exactly the kind of thing no we names, see in all no cultures. Names,
0: place. Joseph doesn't even exist.
1: Or to give you another example, uh, there's a wonderful uh, book, hope maybe we can put the image up on, on, this, on the screen of this, by a gentleman called Reuven Firestone, uh, who's, a sco- who's a wonderful uh, Western scholar of the Quran. He wrote a book a few years ago called Journeys in Holy Lands. And what he does in that story, he tra- in that book, he traces the story of Abraham and the sacrifice from the Quran, from the Quran uh, through early Islam and into later Islam. In the Quran, it's not clear what which of the children it is, whether it's, a, whether it's Isaac or Ishmael who sacrificed, by the time we get a few centuries in, it's become Ishmael, right? In the Bible, it's Isaac. And Reuven does this wonderful job of showing how the location of the sacrifice and the characters and the details change over time as the story is retold and retold and it becomes less Jewish and less biblical and it becomes Islamicized. And he does a very careful job of tracking that and showing you as stories come through oral culture, that's what happens. And we see it in the Quran. And again, it shows the Quran as this oral document from an oral preacher in Saudi in Arabia sometime around about the seventh century. It looks exactly as we'd expect it. There's no resemblance to any kind of you know, heavenly archetype.
0: Andy, we've got about five minutes. What I'd like to do in the last five minutes, I'd like to just kind of recap what yep. we have done in these three episodes. We've started with this idea that the Quran has never been given the test that the Bible's been given. It's never had this critical analysis, a redactic source, right. a biblical, literary criticism. These don't exist, we don't have anybody that's done this. Uh, no one's ever looked at anything that I know of. Well, there are people that have looked at orality, and this is coming out in the last century, but in Homer's Iliad, right. other groups have done it with Yugoslavia. You've given examples of where that is. You're the first one actually to bring it back down to the Quran itself. And this is something that was curious to you because you needed, you saw this repetition. You saw these biblical tales. Now, those biblical tales have been well known of. Tisdale talks about them in the 1800s. Right. He does a, a, a great job of saying that these are nothing more than borrowed tales. But when he was talking about it, he assumed these were written accounts. These were written tales
1: that they had just mis, uh, misconstrued. You're, yeah. saying, you're saying no. no. Tisdale didn't go far enough. Exactly. I me say a couple of things that are hugely important. Let's push back before Tisdale. Preserved in the pages of the Quran are the criticisms that Muhammad's opponents leveled at him. Do you remember what the Meccans accused him of, of using? He was accused of telling fables of the ancients. Right. So they, there was something in what he, he was saying that in their ears sounded like these stories. But here's the other mystery that for a long time mystified scholars, the Meccans, who were famous in history for being great poets and having a great poetic tradition, they accused Muhammad of being a poet, and he denied it. Now, why is that odd? Because normally it's the other way around. You know, ma- perhaps you, uh, you come across a famous author and you go, oh, yes, well, I'm a famous author as, as well. And they go, oh, no, you're not. You're a jobbing hack. But why is it that the Meccans... Which would be true in my case, but not in your case. Why is it that the Meccans who knew poetry were insistent that Muhammad was a poet and Muhammad, who wasn't a poet, was insistent that he, he wasn't? It seems the wrong way around. What I've explained begins to answer this. What I think is going on is Muhammad picks up these kind of formulaic language that the poets were using, mm-hmm. and all of the Arabian poets were using this stuff, but he has the innovative idea of using it to tell religious ideas for the first time. So he thinks he's doing something new. So he genuinely thinks, well, this isn't poetry like that. The Meccans, on the other hand, are hearing all this formulaic language and all these stories, and they go, no, no, this is poetry. So actually, they were both telling the truth. And that that insight, that that, that criticism that's there in the pages of the Quran, gives us another window into what's going on. Um, Muhammad picked up this tool that was known to everyone in Arabia and his, his originality, and I have no problem as a Christian saying Muhammad did some things that were original, his originality was going, I can use this to convey religious ideas. And remember, a lot of it, what it, a lot of it, in also I understand early Islam, I think you have to understand Muhammad's passion for the Arabian people. And he gets this idea in his head to be a great nation, like the Byzantines, like the Persians, the Arabian people, the Arabs, need a religion. And he got it into his head. It was his job they to create a, a one. They need a revelation. They need
0: something that they could hold on to. We're yeah. going to talk about this in uh, future episodes. But... Um, this is exciting because what you're showing and what you're saying is that's why we now see this repetition. That's right. You see these repeated phrases over and over and over again.
1: It's all there. This is the beauty of this. You don't, in one sense, even if you are not a scholar, if you're uh, an ordinary uh, reader of the Quran, if you're a Muslim doing this, or just someone opening the Quran for the first time, you, it doesn't take you long flicking through to get. oh you yeah, You put this into t- computer analysis. And you, you can put the numbers, the number crunching, it did we it very quickly. Do and the you number crunching. Out
0: that whereas uh, orality is, it had to be something anywhere from 20% of the
1: text or more. The Quran is approaching 50 Approach 50. So it, it, it shouts that. at you as a scholar, almost almost double, and to go to me, it's unquestionable. This is, this is how the Quran was put uh, I want you to wrap this all up.
0: What does this say then about the Quran? I want you to just tell, especially to the Muslims that are so out I'd there. So I'd
1: say to Muslims listening, go right, go right back to the start of this discussion. Right? We talked about the fact the Quran, well, the Islam really stands on two things. There's two things that, that your Muslim faith stands on if you're a Muslim uh, listener to this. It stands on the book and the man. If you can't trust the Quran. If you can't trust what you've been told as a Muslim, that it came directly from heaven. If you can't trust Muhammad's claims to prophethood, the whole game is over. Well, we've talked a little bit about Muhammad, but we've talked about the Quran. And as hard as it may be for some of you to hear this, the evidence overwhelmingly shows you the Quran is a history. The Quran has a way it was put together. We can expose that uh, to huge detail now using computers and 21st century analysis. The book does not stand up. And so the question is now whether you have the courage to see where this leads and as you said at the beginning jay what excites me as christians we understand the book and the man because as christians we have the gospels and we have jesus and uh, i think what excites me is we can do the same kind of critical analysis on the bible and it stands up uh, the gospels uh, are full of the names and the dates and the places and the fine details that expose them as eyewitness testimony they're a very different kind of literature and so do like, we
0: don't find this orality, is what you're saying.
1: Well, I'd say two things very quickly there. We, find, uh, we do find orality in pages of the Old Testament, particularly in places like the Psalms, which is what you'd expect, because mm-hmm. the Psalms claim... they to, are. They are. They're, they're, they're praise poetry. David picks up his instruments and praises the Lord. We find hints of orality in places in the Gospels, particularly in the parables, but that's what we'd expect, yeah. because Jesus is a wandering, oral preacher. He comes into a village and there he begins telling these beautiful stories and beautiful parables. So we would expect to find orality. So in the Gospels, where we would expect to find it, we find it. In the Quran, where if the Muslim story is true, it shouldn't be, we find it. And the same critical tool, on the one hand, cuts through the Mm. foundations of the Quran and actually supports the Bible.
0: Oh, Andy, this has been great. I wanna thank Andy for coming down. He's been doing these three episodes with us to unpack his own doctoral research. Uh, here's a, a picture, we're gonna show the book that you can buy to unpack it yourself to get much more in depth. But I hope you've really followed. This is something that shows all the way through that this has human imprint on it. This is not a book. This book here that is, comes from heaven, probably doesn't even come from Muhammad. Looks like it has human imprint. Intervention, Very oral, much formulaic intervention over and over again. But hey, we didn't know that. I didn't know that until really I got your book and actually started talking to you. Been terrific having you, Andy. This is Andy and Jay here in London. Over and out.